according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 1 as we get started this morning. John chapter 1. If you start to hear the static, let me know. You'll probably hear it before I will. And I'll switch to the other microphone like Warren, uh, Warren Dowd had to do on Sunday night. All right. John chapter 1. This is our fifth lesson in the Life of Christ series. We are uh, looking at the pre-incarnation work of Christ today from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. We will uh, begin, however, with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We ask, Father, today for your hand of blessing upon our study that you would guide us into the truth. Open the finite limitations of our thinking to the infinite truth of your word. And as we consider the life of Christ, we realize that this is a life that indeed had no beginning with the eternal life from eternity past of God the Son. And I pray that you would open our understanding to consider these things. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As we see in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is, in many respects, the very first verse in all the Bible, because this is a verse that goes back to eternity past. This is the beginning which was without beginning. Uh, as we have been relating this to other beginnings in Scripture, um, we saw in our point one that the Gospel of John begins with an in the beginning that precedes the Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. And I don't think we have any problem with that, uh, certainly since we understand that uh, Genesis 1-1 was a creation beginning and that there were other beginnings that preceded that. Uh, anytime you're dealing with a beginning, you have to establish the context for what that beginning is related to. Um, the beginning of my marriage was in May of, of 91, but the beginning of my uh, role as a father wasn't until the following July when Bob was born. The, the beginning of my uh, pastorate was in December of 95, for example, but that wasn't the beginning of my teaching because I had taught for four years prior to becoming the, uh, the pastor here. So anytime you're going to talk about beginnings, obviously you have to establish the context. We have here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, if it exists, if it exists as something that has come into existence, Christ did it. The only things that Christ did not create are the things that are themselves uncreated. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if it has come into an existence in terms of creation, Christ was the agent of Trinity that was responsible for the engineering of that creation. Now under this, I hope, uh, and I'll just run through this in review. It's been three weeks since we've been here. and I appreciate the the two weeks off. Tonight I'm going to be giving a report on those two weeks and uh, with photos and everything for the, the Philippine trip that was just recently completed. So we're about three weeks uh, since our last study and I don't mind a review here to remind ourselves of what we're dealing with. The Word. This is sub-point A. The Word. In the Greek we have Ha Lagos. is a title for God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have no problem with this. We understand this from not only the immediate context of John 1, but we understand this also elsewhere throughout the Bible where the Word is mentioned. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. It's a critical judge of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Um, I believe that reference to the word there in Hebrews is a reference to Jesus Christ. Likewise, uh, the word that will not return void, I believe, not only applies to the written word of God as it impacts our lives, but also is reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Other uh, applications accordingly. So in John 1, when we're dealing with Halagos, we recognize that we're dealing with God himself. Since, obviously, the statement Halagos, uh, Ein Hathaos, the word was God, we realize that to identify the Word, it has to be either Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. Those are our only three options, since 
the Word was God. We then examine the near and far context, we examine the nature of what we're dealing with, and we can rule out the Father and the Holy Spirit here, and we understand that when we deal with the Word, that we're dealing with God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, or point B now, the term was is um, a word we often overlook, a word we don't pay much attention to uh, in the English language anyway, but the, uh, the different tenses that are possible in Greek make it very clear. This word was is in the imperfect tense, which stresses continuous action over past time. And I hope we can understand that. Um, that this is expressing the, the duration of his existence, that being eternally, in the beginning. The context for this is eternally past. Uh, so throughout the span of eternity past, throughout the creative ages, throughout all of time and existence, uh, the Word has not only existed, but existed in this relationship with the Father. And that will hopefully become more clear as well throughout our life of Christ study. Uh, just a, a brief picture for you here when we're dealing with our tenses. And uh, we're dealing with, uh, with these things. For example, in the past, we have an aorist tense, which is simply usually drawn out as a point a point of action. In fact, not every aorist is a past. In some cases, uh, an aorist actually points to contemporary events in the present. Um, but it is, a, it is a point called punctiliary action. The uh, imperfect stresses the continuous action in the past. See? So if you're going to reference something you did once, some time ago in the past, all right, um, uh, I went through... Uh, air assault, an air assault course in the army where I, uh, was designed to train soldiers how to jump out of helicopters. Alright? It's something I did once. <laughs> and only once. And I hope to never do so again. Alright? That's a point of action. But if it was something in the past that you did continuously, or you did repeatedly, or you did, uh, habitually, in a, either a chain of, of, uh, individual events or in a long, serious, uh, continuous uh, event, that is where you would use the imperfect tense. And that is what we have here. There are other past tenses. Um, the perfect, the perfect, E-C-T, refers to a past completed action that has present, ongoing, and even eternal results. And uh, that is my favorite of all the past tenses. It is the tense of our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But that you have been saved refers to a past completed event that has ongoing, present, eternal, continuous results. And it's a beautiful uh, tense in the, in the grammar of the language. So, none of this is designed to bore you, but it is designed to impress upon you the, the uh, emphasis here in the word was. And we can say continually was. We can say eternally was because of the imperfect tense of the uh, of the uh, verb here ain in archaean ha logos in the beginning was the word continuously was eternally was always has been the word. Now there are three things that are emphasized here in these phrases. Not only was he in the beginning, but he says the word was with God. The word was with God. The expression there, before the face of God, comes uh, in many respects as a reflection of, a, of, a, of the Hebrew language. John, of course, being a Hebrew author, there are a number of Hebrew expressions that carry forth into this gospel record. But before the face of God the Father, that is, in direct face-to-face relationship with God the Father. There are some relationships that are near in proximity, but they are not near in fellowship. And I think that's obvious enough just simply through human experience and observation. <laughs> there might be people that you are near to in proximity and location, but you're not really near to them in relationship. You're not near to them in heart. You're not near to them in, in purpose. You're not certainly not near to them in love. 
But this nearness between the Father and the Son is reflected here, that He was with God, that is, in face-to-face relationship, nearness and communion with God. That will come up again in this passage, uh, down in verse 18. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. That expresses nearness, that expresses intimacy and love between the Father and the Son. The second thing that's highlighted here in this verse is His very essence as God. The Word was God. Absolute deity. Undiminished deity. And even though He laid aside His privileges, even though He humbled Himself when He uh, took upon that human body and entered into uh, physical life upon this earth, He never ceased being God. And I hope we understand that some people have it and they're thinking that He stopped being God for that period of time He was on earth. He is still God, very God. He just chooses not to exercise His privileges of deity. He chooses not to make use of His omnipotence. He chooses not to make use of His omniscience. It would be very easy for us to pass all of our tests in life if we could make use of omniscience and learn what all the answers are and learn how to pass each test. Or if we could just, if you and I could just tap into omnipotence and and acquire some uh, almighty power to go ahead and destroy all our enemies and fix all our problems and and give ourselves all the money we want. How much easier would it be to pass all our tests if we could just use omniscience and omnipotence all the time? (laughs) I'd pass every one. How about you? All right. But Christ didn't do that. He could not do that if He was truly to identify with us. If He was truly to identify with us, He could not even one time make use of omniscience or make use of omnipotence. And that's going to become a theme over and over again. And if in the course of this Life of Christ study, we come across a point where you think maybe He's tapping into omniscience there. See, like when He recognizes Nathaniel or you know other things that appear to be omniscience. I'll make sure to point that out, or you can ask a question and ask me about it. But in in each of these cases, we can assign that knowledge he has available to him, not so much as uh, a reflection of omniscience, as simply a uh, evidence of the fact that he was, in fact, a prophet. (laughs) That he was a prophet, an Old Testament prophet, uh, sent by God to accomplish his purpose, and he demonstrated no more... uh, uh, out of the ordinary from other prophets than, say, Daniel or Ezekiel or any of the other Old Testament prophets we could name. So we will come across that from time to time, and I hope uh, that we will uh, emphasize that accordingly. And then the third item here, his unique position before the Father, it is actually restated in verse 2. Verse 1 we saw he was in the beginning, or the Word was with God, and then it's restated in verse 2, this one, or the same, this one was in the beginning with God. And this stresses that unique relationship that has not only existed from eternity past, but continues to exist throughout time and will continue to exist throughout eternity. That unique position before God the Father. Now, the Holy Spirit has eternal life. The Holy Spirit is just as much God, just as much omnipotent, just as much omnipresent as the Father and the Son But he does not have that same face-to-face love, unique love relationship that the Father and the Son share, for example. When the Father says, you are my Son, today I have begotten you, he is not speaking to the Holy Spirit. God the Father is speaking to God the Son at that point when that um, uh, relationship between the Father and the Son is proclaimed. So there is a unique relationship here. The Holy Spirit can reveal the Father. Of course the Holy Spirit can reveal the Father. And He does so. He's doing so this morning as the Holy Spirit indwells each one of us in the process of this Bible study. The Holy Spirit reveals truth. The Holy Spirit reveals the Father. The Holy Spirit reveals the Son. But the Son reveals the Father in a very unique way. The only visible way that has ever occurred on the earth. Again, that's verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And I will be teaching that verse here this hour. We will be focusing upon it. Notice verse 14. The Word became flesh. Holy Spirit didn't become flesh. The only, uh, there's very brief times when the Holy Spirit would even have a, a, uh, for an observable form like the dove that descended out of heaven and, and so forth. 
But it was God the Son who became flesh and dwelt among us. The Holy Spirit didn't live, tabernacle, dwell among human beings. That was what Jesus Christ did. And we saw His glory. Now the Holy Spirit has glory, of course. He has deity glory. He is God, the same as the Father and the Son. But the Son has this unique glory. It's described here as glory of the only begotten from the Father. And we will talk about these issues here as well. Alright. Point C now. This is our review from three weeks ago. Point C. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Halagos, was the primary member of Trinity to accomplish the creation. Now all three members were involved in terms of the Father who set forth the design, the plan, and in terms of the Son who actually worked that plan, and in terms of the Holy Spirit who had a role as well, according to Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was brooding over the surfaces of the deep. But it was the Son who accomplished the primary work. We see it here in John 1, verses 3 and 10. We see it in Colossians 1, 16. We also see it in Proverbs verse 8. I'm going to spend some time, or Proverbs chapter 8. I'm going to spend some time on these passages today, and hopefully we will have a good handle on this. Now, verse 3, all things came into being through Him. And it's uh, an important use of the word ginomai here. G-I-N-O-M-A-I. Ginomai. Um... There's a difference between is and becomes. And I hope we understand that. Let me just chart it out for you here. The word for is, or am, he is, I am, you are, <laughs> the verbs of, state, of uh, static being. Alright, the, these are the words of being. He is, I am, you are, we are. Alright? In the Greek is Amy or Aimi. Alright? But the word for become this is quite a bit different. Now sometimes it's rendered is, am, and are, or was, and so forth. But the impact on become, which is ginomai, G-I-N-O-M-A-I, is that this this one here simply states being and has no reference to the time that it began. This one here, though, emphasizes that it began at some point and now continues in its existence. Alright? It began at some point and now continues in its existence. As I say, my, my uh, uh, life as a pastor began in uh, 1995. Uh, my life as a Bible teacher began in 1991. Uh, my life as a parent began in 1992. My life as a husband in 1991. All right. My physical life, 1969. My uh, spiritual life, 1973. All right. These are things that became. That became. I didn't become a husband until 1991. I didn't become a father until 1992. I haven't always been a father. All right. And so... Whereas in verses 1 and 2 we have the existence of Christ, He simply is, along the lines of the language, I am. He didn't become God the Son, He always has been God the Son. But now in terms of creation, everything that became, and we can summarize by saying, if it became, He made it. If it became, he made it. That's a, a paraphrase for verse 3. Of all the things that came into being. It says, all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, if it's something that has come into being, He did it. In this created universe. Verse 10, He was in the world... This is reference to Jesus Christ, God the Son, Halagos. He was in the world. The world was made through Him. And the world did not know Him. Over in Colossians, we have a good view of this and the Apostle Paul's development. 
Remember, Colossians is very much a Christological book, focusing in on the glory of Christ. It is the sister book to Ephesians, which is a paterological book, much more the emphasis being on the glory and work of the Father in Ephesians. The companion book of Colossians uh, spotlights the uh, nature and work of Christ. So we have uh, paterology in Ephesians, Christology in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He, this is God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the beloved Son that is referenced in verse 13, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, that's the Father, the firstborn of all creation. Alright, God the Son, Halagos, the Word, is the image of the invisible God. Then verse 16, For by Him, by Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. See, there was a whole invisible realm of creation prior to the visible realm of creation. The spiritual realm of creation was created long before the physical realm of creation. And so, the angels, the spirit beings, the spirit realm were all created prior to the human race, the physical beings, and the physical realm. If we can think in terms of multi-dimensions, I think we will do much better in res- with respect to the angelic realm versus the physical realm. And both are in view here in this verse. That's why it's important we can expand our thinking beyond simply Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is doing what? Outlining the physical creation. Outlining the creation of the physical earth. The actual restoration of the physical earth and the creation of of Adam and Eve. You don't find angels in Genesis 1. You don't find the spirit realm in Genesis 1. But you do see it here. By Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, we have four categories of the invisible realm. The angelic references there of thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. What we're examining this morning is the nature of through Him, the nature of Christ as the agent of creation. Uh, in future studies, we're going to have to examine the second part of that phrase, for Him. The purpose for creation. Why did God create? Why did God the Father determine that Jesus Christ would be the primary agent of creation? And what is the purpose of creation in the first place? This verse here tells us it was for Jesus Christ. Creation is for Jesus Christ. Not only are all things created through Him, but all things are created for Him. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, that is, God the Son, in verse 19. He is the primary agent of creation. Um, Now for this, let's go back to Proverbs 8 and spend some time there. Proverbs 8. And this, I think, will help us spell out the relationship of the Father and the Son. And will also spell out the, uh, the role of the Son in terms of creation. Alright. Proverbs 8, 22 through 31 is the paragraph we're looking for. Proverbs eight twenty two through thirty one, and for this, uh, I think it's helpful that we recall that actions are taken both by the one who plans it, the one who directs it, the one who authorizes it, also by the one who physically does it. Say, if you've ever built a house, you know what I'm talking about. You say, I built the house or I bought the house, or what have you. You're the agent who authorized it, who contracted for it, who paid for it, who financed it, and all the rest. You may have delegated somebody else to actually do the, do the, the pounding of the nails. So who built the house? See? <laughs> Legitimately, you can say both. And that's what we have here with the father and the son. The father is the designer. He's the planner. He's the one who authorized But the son is the one who was the contractor, the master craftsman who did the work. 
It says in verse 22, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way before His works of old. Now this is wisdom speaking. The whole paragraph here is wisdom. And it starts, uh, the, the chapter starts with wisdom in chapter 8, verse 1, Does not wisdom call? And uh, it's in the first person. Um, on top of the heights, beside the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Uh, you notice in verse 4, To you, O men, I call. And this chapter is given in the first person. Wisdom is speaking. Verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. So we have wisdom here speaking in the first person. And we understand that this is wisdom speaking in the first person in uh, as a title for Jesus Christ, similar to how the Word is a title for Jesus Christ in John 1.1. 1, 1. Now, in verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way before His works of old, or the Lord begot me would be another way that you could render this. The relationship between the Father and the Son being established as the very first relationship. From everlasting I was established. That is, from eternity past. From eternity past I was established. Uh, there's, There's nothing upon this earth, even the earth itself, were not created in eternity past. They were created within the confines of time. The physical universe was created within the confines of time. But here is something that was established prior to time, that is from everlasting eternity past. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. This word for brought forth is a childbearing word. What we're seeing here is a glimpse of when the only begotten was in fact begotten. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The very first of all uh, declarative works of God the Father in his divine decrees was the establishment of the glory of Jesus Christ as the begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary, so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. See? Now all throughout this, wisdom is now speaking, and he's speaking of what Jehovah has done. He's speaking of what God has done. And in context, we understand this is the Son celebrating the Father. Now, as we, as we go verse by verse through here, it appears, because I stopped my reading at verse 29, I haven't read verse 30 yet, it appears that the Son here is celebrating not only His eternal existence with the Father, but also all the work that the Father has done. In creation, settling the mountains, settling the hills, making the earth, making the fields, uh, inscribing the circle, uh, making firm the skies. Uh, uh, when he made firm the skies in verse 28, when he set for the sea its boundary in verse 29, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. This all appears to be items that the Father has done until we get to verse 30. And we see then, or at that time, I was beside him as a master workman. And so we see the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father planned all of these actions, directed all of these actions, designed all of these actions, but his master workman was who? God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, working side by side with his Father. I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight Playing or rejoicing always before him. The word there is a word for playing. It was used of children. A father that would love to see his child playing. A father that that delighted to see his child. And that's the, the language of what we have communicated here in verse 30. The love of God the Father for his Son. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I was daily... His delight, rejoicing always before Him, rejoicing in the world, His earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. 
Now, there's a whole lot that can go into this, and I could probably develop a whole series, and should at some point develop a whole series on the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, the establishment of his human nature, the uh, the uh, activity of the of the uh, hypostatic union and all the rest, and the role of the Father and Son in creation. That's a whole study all on its own. It's a whole series all on its own. And this passage is a centerpiece for developing it. This passage along with Colossians chapter 1 as well as a couple places in Hebrews that I think really ties it together in a, in a perfect picture. But see how that passage ends. Having my delight in the sons of men. Having my delight in the sons of men. When you think of all of the realm of creation, both visible and invisible, rulers and authorities, powers and dominions, all of the things of creation, when you think of all the galaxies, the stars, the planets, Everything imaginable, what is it that gave the Son the greatest pleasure? It was the sons of men. It was the sons of men. And even when you think about the the end of God's creation, after the physical universe, the creation of the angelic realm, the fall of the angelic realm, the restoration of the earth, the uh, habitable conditions, the last bit of God's creation on day six was man. It was man. Relatively speaking, man came along pretty late in the realm of creation. We have no idea. We have no way to know how long the angelic realm was. We have no way to know uh, how old the creative universe was by the time God put Adam and Eve onto it. We have no way to know any of that. But we do know that it was the very last step of God's creation. For you ladies, you can even take a greater uh, appreciation for the fact that even woman was later than man. (laughs) Although, woman was created inside of man when Adam was created, as far as that went. But, the the greatest delight Jesus Christ had of all the things that gave him the most pleasure in obeying the Father's will in the realm of creation was man. The sons of man. Having my delight in the sons of men. Not the angelic realm. They have their role, they have their function, they have their purpose, they glorify God and all the rest, but not according to the level or the, uh, the, the precise manner that mankind glorifies the Father. So we have the role of Christ in creation. And it's quite interesting that here is the creator of all things, who humbles himself to be born of the Virgin, to enter into this world as this tiny baby. It just staggers the mind to contemplate the uh, the nature of the kenosis. Point D. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Ha-Logos, was the member of Trinity who furnished the light of life to the realm of humanity. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Ha-Logos, was the member of Trinity who furnished the light of life to the realm of humanity. John 1.4, John 5.26, John 14.6. And I'm going to teach this here this morning, and I'll read you these verses. We'll talk about it a little bit, but I'm also going to tell you that <coughs> I don't have all the answers on this. There is more to this that, that needs more study. And I want to learn more about light. I want to learn more about absolute light, God's light. And before I return to John 1, I'm just going to make some observations with respect to Genesis 1. But God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Halagos, was the member of Trinity who furnished the light of life to the realm of humanity. Alright, and we get that from John 1.4. We're going to relate it to 5.26 and 14.6, all references in the Gospel of John. Before I do that, I'm just going to make an observation from Genesis 1 with respect to light. Because the first act of restoring the world and preparing the world for human occupation, and human creation and human residency was the establishment of light. Remember, the earth was formless and void. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
And we took time three weeks ago to point out that there's a gap in between heavens and the earth. That the angels were on hand to witness the establishment of the earth. And so the creation of the physical universe was minus the earth. And then the earth was established and the angels rejoiced. So there's a gap in the midst of verse 1. We also know that there's a gap in between verse 1 and verse 2. Because the earth was not created formless and void, but it became formless and void as the Father destroyed the angelic rebellion. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And um, the darkness there, we're going to do some more work on in future studies, but it's related to the light that God creates in verse 3. And this has nothing to do with physical light or physical darkness. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And by the will of God, light was entered into the physical universe in preparation for the coming of man. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. But you recognize that this has nothing to do with the sun, the stars, the moon, any of that. That's not till day 4. You spot that in verse 14? Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. God made the stars also. Sun, moon, and stars, that was day four. So what was this light all about on day one? Alright, it's not sunlight, not starlight, not moonlight. It's God's light. Alright, John chapter one. And again, I'm not saying I have all the answers on this. I'm just saying that this is something I have in my mind for future study. The absolute light of God's glory. The light that will be absent in the lake of fire. The uttermost darkness, the outer darkness where the condemned for all eternity are placed in the lake of fire. So you think, well, fire has got to be lit up, right? <laughs> Doesn't fire produce light? Not this fire, not the lake of fire. A place of utter darkness. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is God's kind of life. This is eternal life. The Zoe Ionios, eternal life. It is called a life of light, or the light of life. This is something that is vested within the realm of humanity. I have yet to find a verse that refers to this in the angelic realm. Are angels alive? Well, you can think of them as alive. (laughs) They move, they think, they act, they speak, they do things. But it's a different kind of life than the life that is vested within the realm of redeemed humanity. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not either comprehend or overpower it. We realize that this light exists continuously now in that conflict with darkness, but that conflict is coming to an end, because darkness itself is going to be defeated and confined. Alright, now this, as I say, this this gets into realms that we might not be comfortable thinking on. This gets into realms that we realize, you know, I'm going to have to chew on this a little bit more. Because this isn't sunlight we're talking about. This isn't physical light that the sun produces that we're talking about. This is God's light. It is provided for each one of us that are now born again, that are now uh, sons of light. Point E. The light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ is sovereign over the realm of darkness that attempts to blind the eyes of the unbelieving. The realm of darkness. The light of the the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ is sovereign over the realm of darkness that attempts to blind the eyes of the unbelieving. That's John 1.5 and 2 Corinthians 4.4. Light and darkness are in conflict. But light is sovereign. Light is omnipotent. Light overpowers. 
Again, John 1, 5 and 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. When you are proclaiming the glory of Jesus Christ, you are shining the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And you're shining a light much brighter than any physical light you can possibly shine. And Bert Aronson came through here about ten years ago and he had a a, a light that he was selling. Selling to police agencies, selling... Uh, it was a, Originally it was military-developed technology in a, in a powerful handheld light. Do you remember that, Sharon? Did you see that? Powerful light. It was about this big. You could hold it. You could aim it. You could shine it up. It was powerful enough where you could be standing on the ground at night and you could spotlight a, a commercial jetliner 30,000 feet up. That's a powerful light. <laughs> you could set it to this. It had a strobe effect. It had a, uh, a high-intensity strobe effect that flashed. I forget what the cycle was, but it was an on-off, on-off strobe flash that was some, you know, thousand cycles a minute or whatever. It's a, a, a high rate of off, on, off, on, off, on. And if you were to hit somebody in the in the face or the eyes with this off, on, off, on, off, on, what it was designed to do, it, it overloaded the brain uh, uh, senses and, and knocked a person unconscious. The brain couldn't handle that strobe of the light off, on, off, on, off, on. And when if you hit somebody in the face with it, it just knocked them unconscious. So it was a, you know, like a law enforcement type thing to subdue a suspect and developed originally for military capabilities and so forth. Nifty invention. Okay? So this, think about this powerful light. That's just physical light. has nothing to do with this light, God's light, the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. There's the true power. Power for all eternity. The light shines in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not... I don't like the rendition of of uh, comprehend. I think it's a much better concept of overpower. They're in conflict and one of them is going to overpower the other. Light overpowers darkness as it's related here. Over in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, we see the work of the adversary in trying to blind the eyes of the unbelieving that they might not see. It says in verse 3 and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing to the perishing ones, to the perishing beings, that is, those without Christ. Remember, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. If you're without Christ, you're a perishing one. You're a perishing being. And as a perishing being, the gospel is veiled. It is veiled to the perishing ones. In whose case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Perishing and unbelieving are there in parallel. The perishing ones are the unbelieving ones. But believers are non-perishing. Blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. By seeing the glory of Christ through Christ you see the Father. That's what John 1.18 is all about. That's what John 1.14 is all about. That's what we're dealing with, with becoming saved is not coming to Christ. Getting saved is coming to the Father. I think we use it as a phrase. We use it euphemistically. We use it incorrectly. When somebody gets saved, we say, well, they came to Christ. No. Through Christ, they came to the Father. The role of Jesus Christ in reconciliation was to reconcile fallen man to the Father. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We kind of, it's, it's incorrect. And now I don't jump on people when they use the phrase, because I realize it's a common phrase. It's been around for ages. And I understand what they mean when they say, oh, I came to Christ in September 1973. Okay, I try to relax about it and say, okay. You know, I don't jump all over them and say, well, you dummy, don't you know you came to the Father through Christ? What do you, you know? <laughs> Do you have any Bible teaching? No, you relax. Say, okay, I understand. They got saved. And they didn't come to Christ. But through Christ, they came to the Father. We see that described here. The light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Because we cannot behold the Father, we can behold the Son. And through Him then, as Christ told Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is what... 
the life of Christ study should help us to focus on is not only the glory of Christ, but through Him to the Father. That we will be equipped through the process of teaching this life of Christ study to become evangelists ourselves in revealing the Father. Everything Jesus Christ taught was to reveal the Father. He says, my teaching is not my own, but it is the teaching of the one who sent me. And I hope that we will have a greater um, burden and passion to, uh, because we ourselves are now light, uh, lights in the world, that we ourselves are now sons of light, that we ourselves would not only be a picture of Christ, but be doing what Christ did, taking people to the Father. And I hope that we will gain a passion for evangelism in the process of doing this. I failed to uh, take you to those other verses in John, didn't I? Let's look at those on the uh, the light of life to the realm of humanity. John, We looked at John 1.4. Let's look at John 5.26. The promise of the future resurrection. He says in verse uh, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me. You realize that belief is belief in the Father. Belief in the Father's promise that the sacrifice of the Son would be sufficient. Again, there's a salvation euphemism where we say, Well, I believed in Christ. You can make that statement. But a more, uh, a more precise statement would be you believed in the Father. You believed that the Father's promise of the, of the Son would be sufficient. That the Father would be satisfied in the sacrifice of His Son. That you believe Him who sent me. Faith in the Father. That the sacrifice of the Son was effective for salvation. Has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. For just as the, uh, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The dead will hear. The dead will hear. You were dead when you first heard the gospel and you placed your faith in Christ and you were saved. He made you alive. But the dead will hear the gospel preached to them and so we were. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. The Father delegated to the Son, and the Son has now provided that life to all humanity. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And so we see that the life that He gives us is His kind of life, is the Father's kind of life. The eternal life of glory. John fourteen six. He's not just the way. He's not just the truth. He is the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now realize that the, the way, expressing the means, expressing the route, the truth, expressing the manner that that is revealed, but the life, expressing the end result. We obtain life which is the Father's life, which is provided through the Son. It was the member of Trinity who furnished the light of life to the realm of humanity. What a blessing. And you and I have this as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, for the rest of chapter 1, let's just outline these other verses in verses 6 through uh, 18. Point 2. There are only three main points here for this paragraph in verses 1 through 18. Point two, John summarizes the entire gospel as the witness to the light followed by the light. That's John 1, 6-13. The Apostle John summarizes the entire gospel as the witness to the light followed by the light. The witness to the light followed by the light. That's what the Incarnation was all about. A witness came... Then the light was revealed. John summarizes the entire gospel as the witness to the light, followed by the light. John the Baptist was the witness to the light, followed by the light. Same thing is going to happen at Second Advent, by the way. A witness to the light, followed by the light. 
Elijah will be the forerunner, followed by the coming of Christ in glory at second advent. Verses 6 through 13. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. This is the Baptist, not the Apostle. He came as a witness. The witness preceded. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. This is such an important perspective. I think a lot of believers through pride try to put themselves at the center of the universe. And we are not the center of the universe. We are not the center of the Father's plan. Jesus Christ is. And so far as we decide to spotlight Christ and bear witness to Christ, we will fulfill our role appropriately. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The greatest human being who ever walked the planet was John the Baptizer. And he came to introduce the greatest human being who ever walked the planet, Jesus Christ. I find that extraordinary. He came as a witness to testify about the light. Verse 9, there was the true light. See, everything which you think is light, whether it's sunlight or artificial light or whatever the form of light you like to think about, they're all simply reflections of the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here is the gospel message. It is the witness to the light, followed by the light. And that's our gospel story. So point A, a faithful witness to the light is designed to produce faith in the light. A faithful witness to the light is designed to produce faith in the light. And this is uh, an important principle, not only as it relates back to John the Baptist, but as it relates to you and me, as it relates to us and our evangelism. If I'm giving someone the gospel, I don't want them to place their confidence in, in anything I've said, or place their confidence in me. My role as a witness to the light is to produce faith in the light. To reveal the light in such a manner that the people I'm witnessing to will see that light and place their trust in that. Tonight you're going to see a picture of a man that I witnessed to in the, in the Philippines as we were coming back from Corregidor. Um, they had, there was an indoor seating area on the, on the boat or an outdoor seating area on the boat and we wanted some fresh air so we went out back and we were sitting on the back seating area on that ship that was or boat that was going back from Corregidor to Manila and uh, we're sitting there in the back and there was a crew member sitting back I got a picture of him his name was Ronald and he's sitting there at the very back of the boat next to the the ring the life ring and the rope and the, the other floats that they can throw out there and stuff and his job was to save people that if anybody fell off the boat <laughs> if there was a man overboard uh, this man was designated to throw the life ring out, to throw the boat out, to jump in and, and, and try to save the person. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? There's a nice guy to get to know. <laughs> so, you know, I was able to say, well, so if I fall off the boat, you're going to jump in and save me. He said, yeah. I said, are you a good swimmer? <laughs> he said, yes, I'm an excellent swimmer. I can swim underwater, on the top of the water. I can float. I can pull bodies up. I said, wow. So if I fall over, you can save me. He says, yes, sir. And then that became the introduction to, well, do you know who saved you? And be able to talk about the gospel and stuff like that. But here's a man on the boat that was a designated savior. <laughs> I thought, okay. It's kind of a neat approach. I didn't test it out or anything. But <laughs> I was told there were sharks in that bay. I didn't want to jump into the water. I want to nowhere near that water. I don't like sharks. A faithful witness to the light is designed to produce faith in the light. When we're uh, evangelizing, the emphasis is supposed to be on Christ. Spotlight the light so that faith can be in the light, not in ourselves. Oftentimes we'll include ourselves or we'll, we'll tell our story, you know, how I got saved as a part of how you can get saved. But if we have too much of us in the message, what are we really doing? 
Are we spotlighting Christ or are we celebrating us? We're supposed to produce faith in the light. That's what the Baptist was doing here. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now secondly, Jesus Christ is the true light. The true light. The word here, true, aletheinos, doesn't contrast true versus false, but it contrasts reality versus shadows. It doesn't contrast true versus false, but it contrasts reality versus shadows. He is the true light. We're not saying that sunlight is false light, or that artificial you know, lighting fixtures like here in this room, these aren't false lights. They're, they're truly lights. They do produce illumination. But the true light, as opposed to the shadows, is Christ. Everything else that we call light is only a picture of what true light is really all about. You know, sunlight, we call it light. But it's just simply a picture of Christ. Same thing with artificial light. It's not that they're false. It's just that they are a shadow. They are a picture of something so much greater. All the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, they weren't false sacrifices. They were real sacrifices. But they were simply shadows of a much greater sacrifice that would occur when Christ hung on the cross. So when we're relating true versus false, that's one thing. But this is relating true versus shadow. And we're a little bit crippled by virtue of the fact that we use the same English word true in both cases. When we're contrasting true versus false and true versus shadow, the Greek actually has two separate words for true. One that distinguishes true and false and one that distinguishes uh, reality from shadow. And what we have here is the distinction between reality and shadow. Everything that we know of in the physical universe that we call light is merely a shadow of the true light that is the glory of God shining through Jesus Christ. Finally, in our point three, and I'm out of time, we'll do this next Wednesday, John summarized the work assignment of the Word. In verses 14 through 18, the Word became flesh. And John, the Apostle John, summarizes the work assignment of the Word. These five verses, 14 through 18, encapsulate the whole gospel record of what Jesus Christ was doing on earth. The work assignment of the Word. His work assignment in life. And we know what his work assignment for his death was, to go to the cross and take our place, become our substitute, and, and accept the judgment for the sin of the world. But what was his work assignment in life? What was he doing prior to the cross? What was he doing? And what was he doing so faithfully that as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, in John 17.4, he could say, I have done the work you have sent for me to do. In John 17.4, Jesus Christ said, Mission accomplished. He had done the work that the Father had sent for him to do. And he hadn't even gone to the cross yet. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about how there was a plan for the the, the death of Christ, obviously. But the plan also included the life of Christ. What he was doing in between the baptism in the River Jordan and the arrest in Gethsemane. Because in his prayers right before that arrest... He said, I have done the work you have given me to do. And then he was arrested and he went off to accomplish the work of the cross. So there's a purpose for his life and a purpose for his death. And I hope we can understand both. The purpose for his death is real obvious, but the, so we can be saved in, in the accomplishment of redemption. But the purpose for his life, we want to understand that as well. Because that is really the bulk of what we're looking at in our life of Christ study. From manger to resurrection. So we will be breaking that down as well. Do we have any questions before I close in prayer and we dismiss for the day? Alright. Yes, ma'am? I just have thought on the light. 
That is the transmission of the Father's mind to our understanding. That's light. And just as when physical light hits our physical eyes, we can then see. See? That's physical light hitting our physical eyes. But when spiritual light is transmitted and hits our spiritual eyes, Ephesians 1 says that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and so forth. You you see the spiritual parallel to what the physical reality is. Just as physical light hits our sight, has to hit our our spiritual eyes. And that's exactly what this is. And Jesus Christ is the light. He is the one that strikes our physical eyes, I mean our spiritual eyes, in revealing the Father. That's a great observation. I like that. Yes, ma'am? Colossians 1 says that as well. He transferred us out of the domain of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We are children of darkness, sons of wrath. Um, A lot of description there. That's right. We go from the realm of darkness to the realm of light. Yeah, very much so. All right. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You for Your faithfulness in our lives day by day. Thank You for this study. For the two weeks that we've had off, I thank you that uh, the ladies have still met for prayer. And just thank you again for the mission trip and what a blessing that was. And look forward to the report you deliver tonight and uh, the words of encouragement and the, uh, the fruit that can be born for the congregation here. We just thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.